Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you now to turn them to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. I had my word of welcome this morning as we gather on this Christmas Eve. What a joyous time it is today and tonight will be as well as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas. Our Savior Christ is born. So Isaiah 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, that'll be our text this morning, but really we're just uh, kind of launching from there, and we'll be mostly in Colossians, but this is where we'll start. So let me read this passage to you, Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The Word of God says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light shone, has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end." On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and our greatest need at this Christmas season is not snow. It is not glitter. It is not sentimentality. It is not gifts, it is not even traditions. Our greatest need as we come to this day, and really every day, our greatest need is Christ. And so, Father, I pray that that need will be really clear to our hearts. We would see that this morning, and we would turn with faith to Jesus, to Christ, And at Christmas, we will celebrate the hope that we have because of Jesus and the peace that we enjoy because of Christ alone. Peace with you and peace forevermore. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage the downtrodden this morning. For many, I know that this season is a difficult one. For some, this is the very first Christmas without a loved one. Lord, we pray together as a church that you would encourage those who are feeling that grief anew this morning, that you would bring joy, you would bring comfort, even amidst the lament that they would feel your grace and your comfort and your love for them. And I pray that we would be heralds of the greatest peace the world has ever known and will ever know, the peace that comes from the Prince of Peace. Help me, I pray. Help me to be accurate. Help me to be clear. Help your word to be powerful and compelling to our hearts. Pray that we wouldn't let any distraction get in our way this morning as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So what could bring a warring nation, two warring nations to peace? What could stop two sides right in the beginning of one of the worst conflicts in human history from aiming their rifles at one another? What could bring them from doing that to enjoy a moment of peace? Only a Christmas, I suppose, could do that. Perhaps you've heard of the story, The Christmas Truce of 1914. It's a true story. You can Google it later. The true story made its way around social media and among churches a few years back. It's a very cool, warm story. On the Western Front, the British were in their trenches and the Germans were in theirs. This was recorded by many, many soldiers in their, in their journals and their diaries. This was the beginning months of the Great War, the conflict that would go on to be the second greatest conflict the world has known as far as human conflicts go only to be outdone by the very next war. It was Christmas Eve, 1914, and everyone was miserable. Most of the soldiers were surprised that they were still fighting in what they thought when they went there would be a short war. But here they were, months later, and about to be in a war for a very long time, another several years. They were hoping to be back with their families. Instead of bullets flying that night... Someone on the German side, as the story is told, started to sing a Christmas carol. And then all the soldiers began to sing, the German soldiers began to sing a Christmas carol. Men on the British side heard this, and they started singing too. A soldier called out, you know, one trench to the other, come on over here. And a British soldier soldier responded, you first. Actually, he said, you come over here, how about we meet halfway? And timidly at first, slowly, men on both sides began to appear in front of their trenches, walking towards the no man's land, walking towards the opposing army. And in the middle, they met with handshakes, exchanged wine and tobacco, and sang Christmas carols together, and even apparently played a bit of football, which is for those of you who don't know, soccer. <laughs> this ad hoc ceasefire became known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. It's a, it was eventually quashed by the commanders on both sides, and the men went back to their trenches and returned to the ugly business of war. But they had stopped long enough to make a point for us this morning. Only Christmas, as it turns out, can bring peace between two warring people. Only Christmas. As you know, today marks the fourth Sunday of Advent. Tomorrow morning is Christmas. To prepare our hearts these four Sundays, we've been studying Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, and especially the four titles that you see there in verse 6. The first week, three weeks ago, we saw that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He is not a fallible counselor like all the rest of the counselors, like all the rest of us in the world. He is the wonderful counselor, and he always leads rightly. He always leads on the way. He himself is the way. He is the wonderful counselor. The following week, we hovered over the title Mighty God. Jesus was not merely a human teacher who came to teach good moral values. In the advent, mighty God came, dwelt among us, 
to reconcile man with God. Mighty God came to be with us and save us from our sins. His name shall be called Mighty God. Last week, we focused on his fatherly love and care for us. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. Christ came to love us and sustain us forever. He came to deal with us, not as foreigners, not even as guests at the table, but as sons. Isn't it good? As sons. His name shall be Everlasting Father. This morning, the fourth Sunday of Advent, we are pressing into the fourth title. His name shall be Prince of Peace. Who can stop the conflict and bring peace between warring parties? Only Christ, as it turns out. Only Christ can bring peace. Only Christmas. I really like the Hebrew term translated Prince of Peace there. In this passage, it is Sar Shalom. And you can hear in that term at least one word, maybe two words that are familiar to you. Sar Shalom, the czar of peace. We don't have czars in our government, at least not formally. Some countries have czars. This is what the Russians used to call their kings. You know that? Like czars. They spelled it a little differently, but they called them czars. And the Romans before that, Caesar. That's a title, not a name. The oldest root to the English word czar is this Hebrew word, I think. This Hebrew word, I think. It's gone through many languages to get there, though. Most notably Latin. It simply means ruler, or chief, or prince. And of course, the Hebrew word shalom is known to many of you. It means peace. So in this particular title, we get a sense of the mission of Christ. He will come, it's the language of the Advent, he will come to superintend peace. He will bring peace. And only Christmas can bring the kind of peace we so desperately need. And we do need it, don't we? We do need it. Do you sense the need for peace this morning? We need it in so many areas of our lives and in so many places of the world, so many spheres. Let's, let's imaginatively look at a map, like, a, like an app on your iPad, uh, a map, and consider the hot spots of conflict in our experience, the places with red dots on them where there are conflicts that need addressing, that need the Prince of Peace. First, just note the red dots on our homes. For many, the holidays just bring conflict out. Many are experiencing deep and hurtful family conflict in the home, and I know the holidays can exasperate that. We need peace in family, sometimes between parents and their adult children, sometimes between husbands and wives. Conflict is rife in many families, so there's a red dot right there, right on the home. And we could note many other close-to-home places with small red dots, conflicts with neighbors, workplace conflicts, online conflicts, even conflicts between cars on the road, little red dots of conflicts everywhere on the map. But let's zoom out a bit and see the bigger red dots. There are many conflicts around the world today, aren't there? It was difficult for me to figure out exactly how many wars are being fought right now, but there are many. On the conservative side, some count 32 active armed conflicts, 32 wars in the world today. And the number just grows as people define war differently. We know of two very well, don't we? We've been praying. We've been praying for two two horrible wars still raging, one in the Ukraine, 
and Israel and Hamas are at war all over the map, all over the world map. There are red dots. There are conflicts, some bigger than others. Man does not know peace. That's, that's an axiom. Man fights. That's just what we do, and we've done that since Cain invited his brother to go on a walk. Man fights. But let's keep zooming out this map, shall we? There are even bigger red dots on this than the man-made, man-to-man conflicts. There, there, there is a massive red dot between God and man. Holy God, perfect in every way, and sinful, rebellious man, and there can be no fellowship there while that's intact, while that relationship is defined that way. There is only, as the scripture tells us, enmity. There's a massive hot spot of conflict. You might not have felt ever like you were in conflict with God, like you were God's enemy. But if you are a sinner, then you are part of the insurrection. Or were part. You were at one time at enmity with God. And more importantly, he with you. So there's conflict between God and man. But let's even zoom out further, shall we? It says, see the entire cosmos, the the spiritual realm. There is a huge red dot there too. There's a cosmic conflict that we cannot see, yet we can certainly feel, and we see its effects everywhere. There is a cosmic rebellion. There are principalities and powers, as it were, spiritual forces who have rebelled against God in the heavenly places and have sworn to be his enemy. The point is, my point, is that the map is loaded with red dots. From the cosmos to our families, even to our own hearts. I didn't even go there. I could have. I didn't even go there. Anxiety and turmoil in the human heart. There's massive conflict. This is a war-torn universe. How will we ever see peace in that? You know what we need? We need God to appoint a czar of peace to come into this mess and bring real and lasting peace to all of those red dots. Peace to the heart of man. Peace among brethren. Peace in the world. Peace in the cosmos. We need a Christmas. This is a good title we're looking at this morning. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. We know, I mean, you know, I know, we know that we need the Prince of Peace to come and bring, usher in peace. And not some flimsy, fragile, sentimental, momentary ceasefire among tired soldiers. We don't need a Christmas truce. We need an everlasting peace as strong and as sure as God is strong and sure. That's what we need. We need a Christmas, a real one. So what I think will be helpful for us this morning is to first show how Christ, how Christ, the Prince of Peace, actually brings peace. And then show how that applies to the aforementioned red dots of conflict. Let's look at a passage that makes this really clear. Turn, if you'd like, to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 23. 
So Colossians 1.15 says, Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And listen to this. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. I mean, isn't that amazing? God brings peace by the blood of the cross. The way the Prince of Peace brings peace to all these warring factions is by dying on the cross. He lays down his life right in the midst of everyone fighting over what they want. Everyone fighting for their own advantage, killing over what they covet and desire. Jesus comes and he lays down his life. The work of Christ is what brings ultimate peace to the universe. It was his work on Calvary's cross. This is what brings peace between God and man, and peace to the heart of man, and peace between brothers, and peace in the universe. The gospel is what brings ultimate and lasting peace. I want to show you how this works with those red dots, specifically, briefly though. Areas that need peace, beginning with God and man. How does God bring peace with his own enemies, with Man who is sinful and rebelled. You can see it in this passage, right? Verse 21. You who were once alienated and hostile. There's the language of uh, unrest. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Christ brought about peace between God and man by killing the source of conflict. The sin. Our evil deeds. The very thing that stood between God and man, the the irresolvable conflict between a holy God and sinful man, Christ took that onto his shoulders and he died for us. He satisfied God's righteous demands, his wrath against us for all who believe. Therefore, here's the good news, if your faith is in Christ today, I'm happy to report to you that you have peace with God. You have peace with the holy God. That's exactly what Romans 5.1 tells us. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is your hope in Christ today? This is the ultimate reason we need Christmas. Our sin puts us at odds with God. But Christ reconciled us to God by his own death for us. You need peace. And Christ, Christ is our peace. That's how the Prince of Peace makes peace between God and sinners. He lays down his life for us. And by faith in Christ alone, we enter into peace with God through Jesus. Now, how does that work for the red dots between man? Like man-to-man conflict. 
How does the Prince of Peace bring peace in human conflict? Again, fighting is what we know, right? James 4 teaches us that the heart of conflict, at the heart of conflict is that we desire and do not have, and so we fight and we quarrel and we kill. That's true in every conflict. It's true in Ukraine. It's true everywhere. It's true in churches that go through conflict. So how does the Prince of Peace bring peace to that? In the same way, actually, he brings peace by the work of the cross, by the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And I think it works in two ways, okay? First, he makes of the nations one nation. He brings together people from all walks of life, from every ethnicity and socioeconomic situation, and he makes them his one people, his nation. I have very little in common with Yanomamo warriors from the jungles of southern Venezuela. Might surprise you, but that's true. We have different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic situations, different educations, much different clothing. For example, I'm, I'm wearing them today, clothes. Different languages. And I'm sure we have different hobbies, although there might be a tiny bit of overlap there. And yet, many years ago, when I sat in a little hut in a village called Coyoteti, and I heard through a missionary translator the testimony of Andre, a former Yanomamo warrior, how he had turned from his sin to Jesus, I felt an instant kinship. This, this naked tribesman was my brother. He used to raid other villages and caused all kinds of hurt. But now, through Christ, he's a new man. Now he travels about the jungles sharing the good news of the gospel. Now we have everything in common. I mean, picture it. Yanomamo tribesmen, Floridian. And we have everything in common in Christ. Look around the room, friends. We have people from all kinds of different backgrounds. We have different ethnicities, education levels, and so on. We are different people. And outside of Christ, many of us have very little in common. But in Christ, in Christ we are kin. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family, and the sort of family that goes even deeper than blood kinship often is. Jesus brings peace by making of the nations one nation, by making of the peoples his people. There won't be any animosity or envy or conflict or ethnic strife around the table at the marriage feast of the Lamb at the end of the age. Though there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. No envy, all the people groups. No conflict, only peace. That is the work of the Prince of Peace. The second way he brings peace between brothers, man-to-man conflict, is by the nature of the work Christ does in us. He changes us from the inside out. The, the heart transplant surgery we're so fond of talking about here. He replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. By his work on the cross and the way that that work ultimately transforms us, Christ enables peace among brothers and sisters in Christ. We can now forgive as we have been forgiven. 
We can now love as we have been and are loved. We can now lay down our rights and our selfish ambitions and count others more significant than ourselves. It's amazing, this, this work of the Prince of Peace. And oh, what implications this has for many of us at Christmas. This time when much family would gather and some of those old tensions rise up again. Difficult uncle, that rebellious son, and so on. Jesus brings peace. Of course, I know it takes two to truly have peace. But you, friends, if you are in Christ, you are different people. And as much as depends on you, you are called to live that out, to be at peace, to live at peace with everyone. Maybe this Christmas will be a great opportunity for you to show off the work of the Prince of Peace. Show that person with whom you have been in tension that Christ changes everything for us and in us. He has forgiven so we can forgive. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself so we can be humble. So the Prince of Peace superintends and brings peace between God and man and between man and man. If we had time, I would take you to Philippians 4 and show you how he brings peace to the anxious heart of man. But let's go now to the biggest sense in which The Prince of Peace brings peace. How does the Prince of Peace bring peace in the spiritual places? In the cosmos, as it were. Again, turning our attention to Colossians, but this time to chapter 2, verse 15. If you're there, it's just one page, probably. Chapter 2, verse 15 of Colossians says, He, Jesus, Disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There is a sense in which Christ brings peace by bringing two warring parties to the table, right? He brings unity in the midst of ethnic strife, for example. He does that all the time. There is a sense in which Christ brings peace by defeating the enemy. This is the other sense. There's one sense where he brings everybody to the table, right? Two brothers in conflict, they work it out because of Christ. But there's another sense in which he brings peace. There's a sense in which Christ brings peace by defeating the enemy and triumphing over them in the work of the cross. The great rebel rouser, Satan, is not brought to the table and offered terms of peace. It's not how it goes. The serpent is not offered terms or conditions. His head is crushed. The way the Prince of Peace brings peace in one sense is through a final and decisive triumph over the enemies of God. He slays them. There is peace, as Sean Connery famously said in King Arthur, that can only be had at the other side of war. And this is the work of Christ in bringing peace ultimately to all of creation. He slays the enemy. He slays sin. He slays death. And crushes the head of Satan. This is how in Colossians 1.20. He reconciles all things to himself by the blood of his cross. Only Christmas friends. Only Christmas can bring that kind of peace. Not a peace which plays to our sentimentality. But a peace which ultimately destroys all of the enemies of peace. All the enemies of God. 
Now, I'm going to come back to that point in a moment and share a final passage this morning. But before I do, let's consider how we apply the truth that we can see from God's word about the work of the Prince of Peace. And we apply this in so many ways. We preach the gospel. That's one way. We preach the gospel to the enemies of God. And we pray for them. We pray that God's spirit would move in them so that they would lay down their arms and turn with faith to Christ. We share the gospel with our neighbors and our friends and our lost loved ones and our coworkers. And we send and we support missionaries to go to the nations because we want to be peacemakers. We want the work of the Prince of Peace to be known, felt, and experienced. We want to share the great work of the Prince of Peace in turning people hostile in mind to friends of God. We preach and we share and we pray for the lost. It's one way. Another way is that we live out the work of Christ in us. Another way that we apply the great work of the Prince of Peace is by forgiving ourselves. I mean, forgiving others, rather. And humbling ourselves. And by the Spirit's enabling power, by loving our enemies. I mean, ponder that for your life this morning. I think it's super applicable for us. Christ brings peace to marriages and families and neighbors and nations. And it begins, it begins with the work that he has done in you. Do you want peace? Humble yourself and forgive as you have been forgiven and love your enemies. And that is impossible to do in and of yourself. I know you hear that and it sounds really hard. It's not just hard. It's impossible. Outside of the work of Christ in us and the enabling spirit. There's no hope for that. But we have Christmas, we have Christ, and we have the Spirit. We have Christmas to heal broken relationships. We need Christmas to bring peace. Now, I have said all of this knowing that the advent of Christ happened. And you and I both know that there are still conflict. All, there's still conflicts all over the world. There's war, there's unrest, there's anxious tumult everywhere in every realm. Red dots are still all over the map. Nations still rage against nation. Russia still fights against Ukraine. Hamas against Israel. Neighbors against neighbors. Neighbors arguing over a broken tree limb. Marriages suffering with strife. Churches splitting. And Satan still roams about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. So what gives? If what we need is Christmas and we have it, we have the advent of Christ. Why are there still some red dots? Well, the work of the Prince of Peace is not fully realized yet. He has done it. The cross is decisive. He has done it. He is doing it. And one day it will be finally done. What a day that will be. As we've said many times during the season, we live in the valley between the advents. We are still awaiting the, the, the full realization of the work of the Prince of Peace who will come and finally and decisively bring everlasting peace. So we say, like it says at the very end of Revelation, we still say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's how we pray when we see all those red dots. He's done this work, he's doing this work, and one day the work will be finally done. And the Prince of Peace will bring full and lasting peace to all the realms. No red dots left. You want a glimpse of what that will look like? We have it in the church. 
We have it when two people or many people from extremely different circumstances embrace themselves, embrace one another rather, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have it when marriages reunite because of the grace and love of Christ in them. We have a glimpse of this everlasting peace every time, every time we lay down our rights in conflict. And humble ourselves and forgive the undeserving every time you have a glimpse of this. We have it in the preaching of the gospel. And we have a glimpse of this in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, a picture of it. When wolves and lambs and calves and lions and cobras and children dwell together in harmony. I want to close with this passage, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. If you want to turn there, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The greatest work of Christmas is not demonstrated fully when two sides of an armed conflict put their rifles on safe for a few moments and share a smoke and a glass of wine and then go back to fighting. The greatest work of Christmas is displayed when a child can play with cobras with no fear of ever being bitten. When there is perfect peace everywhere, when there are no more red dots. So Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, listen to this. It's the work of the Prince of Peace. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth, listen to this, work of the Prince of Peace, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, that's the work of the Prince of Peace. The work he's doing among us and the work that he will finally and fully, decisively do in Christ. Rejoice in him today. Trust in him today. Rejoice in Christmas for the Prince of Peace has come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we feel the conflict, we sense it, we know it, we've experienced it, and we hate it. And we want it to be gone. And we know the only way is through the Prince of Peace, and so we pray, we pray that you will do this work. We thank you that the Prince of Peace has come and that he has died on the cross and that, he wrote, that you raised him again from the grave. And that one day soon he is coming again.